Hey, good evening, everyone. My name is Brent Wall, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Great to be here. Thank you, Anna, for asking me to come talk. Thank the group for hosting it and, you know, being here. I want to thank everybody who has a commitment and is of service to this meeting. Right? This meeting, it, I'm just going to share this apart and get this part out of the way. So at about 33, 35 days, when the meeting was at the YMCA, right? Yes, the YMCA, thank you, Kelly. <laughs> right, like, <laughs> I'm there at the meeting, not sure really where I am, and my head is telling me I need a three-year chip. <laughs> right? I need a three-year chip. I deserve a three-year chip. Like, I don't even have three years ever in my life, but I deserve a three-year chip that night for some reason. I don't know. And guess what this group did? You gave me a three-year chip, <laughs> right? And you let me, you allowed me to share a three-year birthday share, much like Guy shared tonight, right? Like, and it was all lies. But here's the crazy thing. <laughs> like, here's the insanity. I believed it. Hey, that, that's pretty much me still. You know, I was like, this is still the stuff. Thank God there's some people here that know me well. <laughs> and there's plenty of people in this room that I love, right? And it's really, really a pleasure to be here tonight. I did, however, go back at three years and give this meeting an amendment. <laughs> Just shared that for Mary. Say <laughs> Thank you, Mary. <laughs> And uh, they got a real three-year birthday share. So let's get the details out of the way, right? I have a sobriety date, February 12th, 2013. I'm sober, just as Guy shared. Congratulations, Guy, by the grace of God. I mean, it's really that simple, right? You all helped me, and I appreciate it, and I thank you, and it's not lost on me of how important the members of Alcoholics Anonymous are. It is not lost on me. So, I love AA. Those of you that know me, I'm like, I found out tonight I'm like Anna's spirit, spirit animal, right? Like, <laughs> and I freaking love Alcoholics Anonymous. I am one of its greatest cheerleaders, right? I, I will come and be of service and do Alcoholics Anonymous with you. Because it's the only way I've ever learned how to live this life, right? The most important thing you're ever going to hear about me or of me is that I'm an alcoholic. I think there's no, nothing else that describes me better. I mean, Matt, thank you, Matt, for coming and you know, sharing the journey and ship 10 minutes with us, right? The doctor's opinion nails me, and I don't even understand it at the time. And I, the first time I read the doctor's opinion, it was just lost on me. But I get that I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol and other drugs. I mean, I, that's perfectly obvious. If you're me and you drank and used for as long as I did, it's plainly clear that I have an abnormal reaction because the rest of you aren't doing it this way, <laughs> right? You're not just garbage pail take, intaking everything, getting up the next day, showing up at work, holding down a real professional job, and then continuing the next night. And it could be five days straight. I mean, I wrote some tremendous legal briefs while tweaking. And it's like, <laughs> dude, this is not what people do. I did. Right? That part I got. 
But I didn't, what was lost on me is the second part. And perhaps I do, I'll mainly focus on that, I guess. I don't know. I never know what I'm going to say, right? The second part, my abnormal reaction to abstinence. Alcoholism centers in the mind. I, and all abnormal means is like, if anybody doesn't know, we have a bell curve, right? X, Y axis, stimulus response, stimulus response, right? There's a bell curve and 80%, 85% of American people who have this stimulus response are smack dab in the middle of the bell. Think of it as the Liberty Bell, right? They take alcohol, they're in the middle, right? They stop using alcohol, they're in the middle. This is us, as described in the doctor's opinion. I take something, I'm an outlier, right? I'm a standard deviation separated from the middle, okay? At least one. I've met you guys. <laughs> I think you're at least one standard deviation removed from the middle, okay? And then the, the other part of the doctor's opinion is when we stop. Put it down. You are also an outlier at that moment. You have an abnormal reaction to sobriety. And yet I think it's normal. I think I'm just like every other sober person on the planet, right? I believe that. And the stories I tell myself seem to indicate that I'm just like that. But then I watch you and I interact with you and I don't feel like that. I mean, you know, I can't be comfortable in my own skin. I feel weird, I feel awkward, I feel less than, right? I'm not like you, like the constant chatter that goes on in our minds while sober, right? And then I pour a drink on it and guess what happens to the chatter? It happens for you, it happens, you know, like me, it quiets. And I can go be in life. Whatever this normal thing is, they take alcohol and other drugs, they're not, in life, they're out of life. And that's crazy idea to a room full of alcoholics. And it's no moral judgment. It's nothing your willpower can change. It's none of that. It is literally stimulus response. Now, the damnedest thing about this is that spiritual malady, that third component with it. And here's what that looks like. And again, it's in the doctor's opinion. I'm perpetually restless, irritable, and discontent when sober. Right? I don't want to be right here, right now, anywhere but right here, right now. My feelings get to me, and I can't be right here, right now. I need something else. I need this or that. And it's like the squirrel mind, ADD, manic depressive, however you want to diagnose it. I just can't be right here, right now. I need something. And eventually my brain will drive me right back to that thing that I can't do. Drinking music. Right? And Carl Moore shares this all the time and he gave me permission. It's like, if I could drink or use successfully, I would. Right? And I wouldn't be here. And if I could not drink or use successfully, I would. And I wouldn't be here. I can't do either. This is what the book calls the dilemma. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And evidently, here's, here's pro tip for everything in life. All, all of life. Every dilemma you encounter, the solution is God. Okay? Every dilemma you ever face, the solution is the spiritual solution presented in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Power greater than you. And that's because 
tells us right at the front and later in the end, I suffer from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. With the key word for me being the seemingly part. Right? It seems to me. It seems to me I suffer from a hopeless state of mind and body. And it's plainly for everybody who's in here who's sober. It's not true. Right? It's like, damn. That was eye-opening for me. And maybe all of my problems, just maybe, maybe, perhaps, possible, maybe, just maybe, can I get around that idea that maybe all of my problems are just seeming problems? Book Alcoholics Anonymous suggests that that might be true. My experience after eight and a half years of doing Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's pretty much true. All right, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit what I was like, right? I was born into a wonderful Mormon family and I was born in Provo, Utah. My dad died when I was six though, and I hated God after that, right? And then he didn't die of alcoholism. I mean, the man never had a drink, nothing like that. He just had a kidney disease. And you, anybody who's ever had a kidney disease should thank him because he was on the cutting edge of kidney transplants. And he lived the longest time in America after receiving an organ transplant. And it was wonderful and blessed to have additional time with him because I got to that place where I have memories. I have actual memories of my father. My brother does not. I have a brother who's 16 months younger than I am, right? But my dad's gone. My mom moved. We were living in Michigan at the time. He worked for Ford. None of that really matters, but you know that's that's what he did for for a living. And we moved back to Utah. And at that time, my mom decided to become a professional. Right? She became a lawyer. Right? And she was very very successful. And my brother and I, we became latchkey kids. Not uncommon, right? Only here's what the next I don't know. From the age of six to sixteen, here's what it looked like in the house. Right. The next man my mother brought in into our world, he liked to well, beat little kids and torture them. The next babysitter I had at about the age of 14, she liked to rape boys. Now, violence ensued at the age of 16 in the house because the, the man who liked to beat, beat and torture me and my brother, he, there was gunfire and he was hauled away and then he proceeded to stop us after that. Right, and this is just the stuff that's happening. The next man that comes into my mom, mom's life and my life at the time, his name's Ralph. He's an alcoholic. I loved him. Right? I mean, I loved him. Ralph, Ralph was one of these guys who was like a, I don't know, blackout drinker with a Thorazine shuffle. Right, he'd be, right? He'd be walking, you know, shuffling around in his underwear uh, for four day blackouts. And we would carry on a conversation. I don't know that he's blacked out, right? Like I'm having an interaction with a guy I'm getting to know, right? And I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only Ralph does what we alcoholics do. He's smoking in bed, cigarette smolders, catches the house on fire, burns the house down, he dies. Right? And meanwhile, I have told everybody this stuff is happening. Right. I started, you know, I, I started therapy at the age of eight. Right? I'm, I'm a product of mental health institutions. And if mental health institutions would have stopped my alcoholism, I would not be your speaker. Right? I, mean, I am an absolute product of the best mental health money could buy. 
I know, I say that, and it's like, what? No. <laughs> Boy, I'm not sure we got our money worth, Mom. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I get to this place, right? I'm abnormal, right? I'm sober, still haven't had a drink, right? They're paying mental health institutions are paying close attention to me. Whatever. This is just this is just what I did. I had the serial killer triad. <laughs> and it was Ted Bundy in Utah. It was the explosions of the Mormon churches going on. Like they're paying close attention to Brent. <laughs> okay. What that means is that I was a pyromaniac. Right? I hurt animals. And I wet my bed. The triad. So they were watching me closely, and I didn't. Everybody was saying, What's wrong with Brent? What's wrong with Brent? Meanwhile, I'm a straight A student. I don't know if that part comes through. I am like a straight A student, and I don't have to study. Right? I, don't, I barely have to read a book. Right? I just show up to class, take the test, and I will set the curve, and you all will be envious of me. <laughs> <laughs> that was what was happening. Right? All in Utah. So it was just getting rough for me. I was tired of being me. Right? When you eventually come in, you're tired. You hear it, sick and tired of being sick and tired of being you. Right? And I was tired of being me. So I'm suddenly this guy, Ray invites me to go to a concert. Right? He invites me to go to a concert. Turns out it's a punk rock concert. I'm not a punker. <laughs> I'm not a punk rock kid. Right? This, I'm a good little Mormon kid. Here's what I dressed in, penny loafers. Right? I had penny loafers and khakis on. And I had pennies in my penny loafers. <laughs> I had a white shirt on. It was buttoned up all the way to the top. A bow tie <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> and a sweater vest <laughs> and we're going to the maximum i say that share that for kelly's sake right we're going to maximum Salt Lake city all right and in he pulls up and grabs the paper bag out of the back seat right out of the back seat grabs the paper bag opens four california coolers right quartz two for him two for me and mind you, just like Bill Wilson, I'm taught we don't drink, right? We don't drink. I'm raised in a religion and we don't drink, right? We don't drink no matter what kind of stuff, right? <laughs> that doesn't work, right? Because guess what I did that night? I drank. And at that night, I had the experience of being one with you. People I don't belong with, people I don't know, comfortable in my own skin as a four foot eight scrawny little kid in the mosh pit. <laughs> right? I found God. I didn't know that that's a spiritual experience, but it turns out as you reflect on it after the fact, it was like, holy cow. I went to the bishop that Sunday and I said, we need to change the doctrine. I'm going to drink more. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
There is no way. It would be crazy for me not to. Right? And I didn't have the words to describe it as a spiritual experience. And I didn't know that all the things that I would be promising alcohol that day. I didn't know I'd be promising my career. I didn't know I'd be promising my marriages. I didn't know I'd be promising my kids. I didn't realize I was going to promise and live out the annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. But that promise was the promise I made that day. And it was a promise I was going to keep. Because don't you know, I can't be sober. Right? I can't be sober. So what proceeds to happen in Utah is I find people like my friend Kelly. <laughs> right? I didn't actually know Kelly back in Salt Lake City. But it was like, we find each other. It's not hard. I mean, you've got 90% of the Salt Lake City Valley Mormon, and they don't really drink here. If they want to drink, it's going to be closeted. And then there's like this counterculture, right? And if you saw SLC Punk, you, you will know that the counterculture is real and thriving. And guess what we did? You drink and you get naked. That, that is what happens in Utah. You drink and you get naked. And I, and I like it today, that, I like it today, the description of getting naked, not so much as like the clothes and everything come off, but it's like, I can finally be me again. I'm naked before you, right? And that's what alcohol and other drugs did for a guy like me. And all I did was continue to pursue that. I, you know, my clothes started to change. My hair looked a little different. I became a deadhead, following the dead, right? Like. This is, I went off to college. I ran away from Utah as fast as I could. There are not enough of my people there. <laughs> you know, I, went, I went to a good school, and guess what we did at this good school? We learned how to make drugs and drink. That's what I did in college. Right? And I, and I arrived as a good chem major. And we learned how to make everything. Not for distribution. We wanted to use it. <laughs> So in the dormitories, we stole all the electricity, hydroponics. The chem lab was used for all the chemicals, right? We had the great ovens, and it, we are smart. Like, I am with a bunch of smart social misfits at this institution. And we created a whole new drug that found its way to the street, right? We took out a chlorine double bond, added a bromide double bond, and created bromodragon. It's like, holy cow! This is what my four years in college was like. <laughs> and it was all four years. There wasn't a sober day. There was, we had vials of this stuff. We would cook with it, right? Crystal meth. You guys, you know, I don't know what you're using it for. We used it to learn and take tests. State-dependent learning, capitalized on it. Study on crystal meth, take the exam on crystal meth. That's what we're going to do. And guess what? It works. <laughs> a plus. No, I have all the letters on my transcript, right? <laughs> I did not succeed, <laughs> but I graduated. <laughs> I graduated. I mean, I didn't know what to do. So naturally, I was driven once again by this lifestyle. 
I'm continuing. I've got to do this. I've got to have my ongoing solution to life because naturally, even in my twenties, I have that experience of not, not being loaded. And you know what starts happening if you have alcoholism of my type, my variety, the voices come back, right? And I end up when the voices come back in mental institutions yet again. And not, I've been in several, like some of you come in with a really, really thick criminal file, right? I come in with a really, really thick psych file. <laughs> okay, it's a joke. I wish it wasn't. <laughs> I, wish, I wish it wasn't. And I would just justify all of this on the back of my, my experience, my upbringing, right? I'm going to blame my mother, especially my mother, right? She didn't protect us from the whores, right? I'm going to blame those men. I'm going to blame that mother babysitter. I'm going to blame the cops, right? Because they didn't come in and do enough. Right? I'm, I'm going to create these ongoing narratives that weren't even real. Like the stuff happened in their horrors, but the narrative doesn't have to be that. And I didn't appreciate or even understand that that could be a possibility. I would just have the conversation with myself and tell myself exactly what went down, how it happened, and what they were like and what it meant to me. And I'd live that way. And once again, gave me every reason in the world to do whatever I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, however I wanted to do it, whomever I want to do it with. Sounds like a perfect design for an alcoholic. And I just kept on doing that. I kept on doing that. And I didn't realize, I think I'm choosing this fabulous life. <laughs> it's like I, I laugh about it today. I think I'm choosing a great life. Like I went and I bought a one-way ticket to London. I worked my way around the world, spent three years doing it. Like I think I'm choosing an adventure. I think I'm choosing this great life. And it turns out all I was doing was home the party. Like I went from one, one party in, you know, Prague to the next party, you know, in Italy. And then the next party in Greece. And I find my way to Southeast Asia and I'm hanging out there. And it's like, I'm working and I'm doing cool stuff. Or I think it's really cool stuff. And it turns out, no, no, it's just this party. <laughs> it's just this. Because that lifestyle is far more important than me experiencing life. Living that, I even use that loosely, living when I'm actually just dead already. And I don't know it, propped up by a synthetic appearance of life. Just all, you know, an altered state mistakenly believing that that is somehow real. <laughs> oh, but in, in any event, I continue to do that. And eventually, you know, some of the stuff catches up. It does, it does catch up, right? Eventually the body can no longer hang with what, what I want to put in my body, right? So this slows down as I age, just slows down. It's a natural progression, <laughs> but the insanity gets, goes up. Right? And I start to have these things that we read about in chapter three, you know, I start trying to taper down. I try to, I mean, I have a great job, by the way. Like, you know, I have a fantastic job. I went away to law school, right? I'm, I'm a kick-ass freaking lawyer. 
I was like, I'm having a great experience making lots of money, meeting important, really, really important people, doing all kinds of one, wonderful things. And, uh, you know, I, I marry a woman, thinking that's the right thing to do next, right? And it turns out it wasn't. Because I brought me with me. I right? like, like no, ex no external force is going to be able to change me. No external force is going to change me. We hear it in here. It's an inside job. And it is. For real, it's an inside job. And I'm just looking at you, they, them, the money, the house, the external things, somehow thinking that's going to fix me. Because I already know. And mental health professionals have been telling me, there's something wrong with me. Like my whole life, I've known this. There's something deeply wrong with me. I mean, alcohol, here's what it did. It stopped me from being a serial killer and I stopped wetting the bed, right? Like that was a big deal. Most people, it, you know, turns them the other way. They, right? There's something really, really wrong. <laughs> the first marriage didn't work, right? And it turns out I've discovered I have about a six-year ability to hang. <laughs> like that's about as long as I can go before the restless year ability discontentedness like jumps. <laughs> right? And it doesn't matter who or what you are, it doesn't matter what the relationship is. It's about six years, and I may be pushing it. It might be five, right? Like, I don't know. So at that point, naturally, we get the divorce, right? And I'm in, I'm in Seattle, and here's what it looks like. I'm at the pinnacle of my career. I'm completely single. I'm a, we are appearing, I'm appearing in front of the United States Supreme Court. Okay. I'm appearing in front of the United States Supreme Court at council table, and I can't walk up those steps without getting drunk. Right? And I can't get into the courtroom without doing a couple lines in the Supreme Court bathroom. <laughs> like this is crazy. And I don't even have to say anything that day. I'm just back here in the briefcase. It's like the main guy who's actually going to talk to the justices of the Supreme Court, he's next to me. All I have to do is sit in front of, it was for those, it doesn't matter. It was the opening day of the term for the United States Supreme Court. And sitting in the back of me was the Vice President of the United States, the Attorney General of the United States, and a bunch of other dignitaries. And they were sitting in the back of me. And I couldn't even help the man that I was supposed to be helping. Because I'm there, I'm floated at council table. <laughs> this is what it takes me to, right? I start to realize that there may be a problem and immediately you find, think that children are the solution because that's really why the divorce happened with the first one. I think that children will be the solution to help keep me sober. And they're not. I delivered my first, my first child. It was a natural child. I delivered him to a birthing tub. I'm there catching him. It was 13 hours of 
ongoing. And I can only tell you that that experience rivaled getting drunk the first time. That was spiritual. And it was one of the best moments of my life. And I can also tell you that three years later, I'm doing the same thing with my second one. And I can't wait to get back to the pile. I can't wait to get back to the freezer. I can't wait to just not be there delivering my second son. And it was in that moment that I realized, I don't I didn't realize anything. I, there was a moment where I understood I can't keep doing this. More than that, I can't, I don't even want to keep doing this, right? At the home at the time, things are happening where I can see in my older son's eyes, the same terror and bewilderment that I had in mind as a kid. Things are happening inside that house where the cops are showing up. Things are happening inside that house where CPS is being called. Things are happening inside that house that I didn't want ever have happened. And yet they're happening nonetheless. And I can't do anything about it. Right? I'd run off to treatment. Right? Those of you that have been through treatment, congratulations. I ran off to treatment and I stayed sober after treatment for six months. And after the end of six months, because I had no program, no sufficient substitute for, the, for my solution, I once again attempted suicide, you know, 5150 myself. They thought it would be a good idea to 5250 me. I stayed there. And all I can tell you is the next three and a half years were just desperate drinking. Waking up every morning and wishing I wasn't here. Waking up every morning and going, not another day. Waking up every morning and wishing that death could fall upon me. Waking up and just not wanting to be alive. And after about, we lose all the homes, we lose everything. Thank you, Esther. We, like, all of the external support is gone. We move in with the in-laws, much like Bill and Lois did, right? <laughs> we moved to Missouri. I got no connection to Missouri. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> right? I just called it misery all the time because that's what it was. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. And I had no way to stay stopped. Now I can't even stop. I can't hold a job. I used to tell people they asked me to resign. And it's like, no, man, this is the polite way of professionals firing your ass. Like you get asked to resign your partnership. And that's not a real question. And it's not actually a question I can say no to. <laughs> right? This is a real demand. You're out. Right? I can't hold a job. Every morning I'm going to the, the freezer because the, you know, the DTs are on me. I'm coming to, right? And I hit a couple slugs, go to the shower, turn the shower on scalding hot, crawl in there, get in the fetal position, do the dry keys. And I turn it on scalding hot so that I can feel something that day. Because the rest of the day, I know what it's gonna look like. And mind you, I've, we've got two kids, two beautiful boys. Thank God their grandma's there. <clears throat> Thank God somebody's there because I, the mother of the kids, not so different from me. Right? Because who would marry us? It's going to be a sick, sick individual. 
to marry the likes of me and then bring these two hostages and victims into this, into this world, right? That's just a fact. No matter what I want to think about it, no matter how I want to color it, no matter how I wish it were different, it turns out to just be factual. Right around the 2013, it's near the, nearing the anniversary of my father's death. My, nothing unusual is happening other than once again, I'm praying to die. Once again, the morning routine looked the same. Once again, all of the, it was same day, same day, same day, over and over again. And I did something I hadn't ever done before. I didn't do it consciously. It just happened. I said, fuck it, I did. Dad, help me. I didn't know it was a prayer. <laughs> I'm not a praying type. I'm a militant atheist at this point. Like, I'm going to tell you how stupid you are about believing in God. And I phoned my mom. I phoned my mother, who I haven't spoken to in a while. And I said, I want help. I didn't take a drink on the plane. My mom told me the house is sober. It's in Dana Point, California, right? I said, that's what I want. I'd never uttered those words really, right? Because I was just done. I was fully cooked, right? It was time. I come out here, right? I already told you what happened at day 33. <laughs> <laughs> I got a birthday chip, right? Like, you know, like damn, things are looking good. <laughs> I come out here and it takes me a little bit to get a sponsor. I rolled into the Hardcore Harbor meeting, right? I lived just up the hill. Eric was one of the guys that was in there. And most of the guys in the Hardcore Harbor meeting, I just didn't care for, I didn't like. They had this guy named Steve and he was really loud and he would laugh. And it was like, I didn't want to be here. And I'm also this guy that's in there detoxing in the rooms this time. I need a blanket. I take, I take a blanket with me, right? I'm a toe tapper. I'm in this kind of nodder. Like, like I can't sit still. Like, this is happening in, right down in the harbor. And eventually I go enough to enough meetings because I'm doing four meetings a day. I've got nothing else going on. I can't, I can't phone my kids, right? I can't, like nothing else going on. And I can't even see straight most of the time. I'm barely holding it together at any given moment. And I asked you guy to sponsor me because here's what he had that I'd never had before. He was one of the couple of men that had a light in his eyes that I could never, ever achieve. Not under any chemical condition, like real peace of mind. And I asked him to sponsor me and he, guess what he said? He said, yes. And here's what it looked like. He started taking me through the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He took me line by line everything like that. And I was defiant all the time because I know words better than most of you. And it's like, I'm going to argue with you the whole way. And I did. I argued with him the whole way, but he said, are you willing? And I said, yes. For the first time, I was willing to try something different. I was willing to try something that's way different than what my head was telling me, because I don't believe any of this stuff in this book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I am certain that it won't work. And I'm certain it's not real. And I made a promise with John that night. I said, I'd give you a year. And at that time, if it doesn't work, I'm going to kill myself. And he's like, good, let's go. And we did. Right? 
shortly thereafter, I had another experience where, you know, I, I picked, I didn't realize this until I was just having a conversation with my, with Christine the other day. And I didn't realize that this is what happened. I picked up my conversation with God again. Like, I checked out from the conversation, yet here was the continuation. I'm at Aragon's speaking meeting one, one night, right? This is early still sobriety. And there's a speaker up there, much like I'm doing here at the podium, and he's talking about the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind. And I'm relating to him in a way that I haven't heard anybody at any of the meetings before. And I'm identifying, and I'm nodding, and I'm, that magic starts to happen. And it turns out that the man was the lead singer of the punk rock band. God caught my attention. It's like, all right, Brent, I've had you, I've carried you this whole way. This golden thread of your existence has been nothing of your doing, but always some power greater than me. And I picked up the conversation and the conversation began by tamping down self through four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and getting right with you in the eight and nine. And I had the experience of becoming one without anything in my body. Right? Say caffeine and nicotine. <laughs> I don't aspire to be saintly. Like this is like, <laughs> like this is the deal. Like nothing, no mental health meds. Like this is just my story. I, I'm not got no opinion on anything you do. Like ever. This is just what happened to me. And in that, in the actions of the steps and the workings that happened of God coming in and starting to fill me up, I had the experience that's on, you know, right there on page 55. I'm a big guy on page 55, right? With this attitude, you cannot fail is the promise there. The attitude is described on page 55. It's also curiosity. being passionately curious about the spiritual life, right? being open-minded to the words on the page and being willing to implement these things and experience the dynamic. And it turns out that suddenly as I'm doing this, as I'm getting comfortable being right here right now, my concepts, my ideas do not precede me in life and I can suddenly have a real relationship with Michael. I can have a real relationship with Kelly. I can have a real relationship with Anna. I can have one with Christine, Chris. Like I can have one with anybody that's in front of me as long as my ideas don't precede the actual experience. When they are right-sized in me, I can be with you. And it doesn't matter if you're with me either. That's the bizarre part, right? It doesn't. I can be with you and to me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's magic. Right? I've made these amends, right? Found out all the things I was, you know, screwed up in my head about. Lots of them. And I can't make ongoing amends, right? I first at first moved in with my mother because I had to, Right? And now she needs my help. So I didn't leave it. My kids that I lost when we went through a divorce kind of thing, they're back in my life. It was what, about two, I don't even know, right? Last year they were here for all the school year. So it was January pre-COVID, right? They came back in my life. They live in that house with my mother. 
couple months after that, of course, the, the, the young one said, uh, mommy needs help. Can she come live with us? So my ex-wife now lives with me, my mother, <laughs> and our kids. And it's not that we're together, but we are demonstrating a way that we had never demonstrated before. And it's only because of the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous that I've learned how to love a person whom I despise. It's only through the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous that I've learned how to forgive. It's only through the magic of this program that I've come to be here. And I now can demonstrate with you, with my children, with my ex-wife, with my mother, and with everybody else, you know, love, right? And it's in me, and I welcome it to be in you. It's available to anyone, right? I wanna thank you for my life. You've given me a life better, a way of living better than that first night, right? Thank you all for letting me share.